0: Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck.
1: And I'm Caroline Ballard. We'll hear why last-minute presidential executive orders have Wyoming's
2: congressional delegation nervous. We're trying to fight off and then hopefully roll back rules that the Obama administration is implementing at the 11th hour.
0: Constitutional Amendment 8 would allow the treasurer to invest state reserve funds in the equities market in an effort to get a higher return. The treasurer joins us to say it will have legislative safeguards.
3: They have to think it's a very good idea because they have to pass it by a two-thirds majority, both houses voting separately.
1: We will also have stories on energy and a conversation with Libertarian U.S. House candidate Larry Strumpf.
0: It's all coming up on Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News.
4: Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu
5: slash h-a-u-b.
0: Welcome to Open Spaces. From Wyoming Public Radio News, I'm Bob Beck.
1: And I'm Caroline Ballard. With President Obama heading out of office soon, Wyoming lawmakers fear he's preparing a slew of executive orders that could hurt the economy out West. Matt Laszlo has the story from Washington.
6: President Obama has already done executive actions on everything from energy policy to immigration. Some have been upheld by the courts, while others have been struck down. But court cases take years, and that has Republicans, like Wyoming Senator John Barrasso, worried that Obama is going to use his pen on the way out of office.
7: The White House chief of staff said this year, he said on the way out the door, that uh, they're going to be using uh, audacious executive actions. That's the White House's uh, spokesman, chief of staff, saying audacious executive actions. So there are great concerns about Uh, what this White House, what this president may do as he leaves
6: office. The president has already riled Western lawmakers by using the Antiquities Act to declare more swaths of land out west as national monuments. Wyoming Congresswoman Cynthia Lummis is bracing for more declarations.
2: Uh, Nevada's been impacted, New Mexico's been impacted, Utah, Colorado, there will be other designations that will uh, affect these areas and others. Uh, in the last two months of the Obama presidency. We will be watching that closely.
6: Lummis recognizes it's hard to unwind rules and regulations if a Democrat is in the White House.
2: We're trying to fight off and then hopefully roll back rules that uh, the Obama administration is implementing at the 11th hour. That will be way more difficult if uh, Hillary Clinton is the uh, uh, president-elect.
6: For example, President Bill Clinton's roadless rule. The executive order protects 58 million acres of national forests from road buildings and logging. Wyoming used the courts to get the rule overturned. But after 11 years of legal battles, the executive order was declared the law of the land. Even with the revelation of Donald Trump's degrading comments to women, Lummis says the West needs Trump in the White House.
2: Congress can uh, bring about change in a Uh, Trump administration. Hopefully our colleagues on the Democrat side of the aisle will help us on waters of the U.S. and some rules that affect both Democrats and Republicans in ways that are completely unsatisfactory.
6: But most Democrats aren't clamoring to unwind key parts of Obama's environmental legacy. Virginia Democrat Jerry Connolly says the GOP has made much ado about nothing when it comes to Obama's push for tighter rules and regulations. So
8: with all of the so-called regulation of the Obama years, have we created 14 million new jobs net or not? The biggest, longest net positive job growth in American history. I thought there was job killing.
6: That said, Connolly adds, the president shouldn't use his executive pen as if it's a scepter.
8: I would hope that all new rules and regulations are based on years of study and uh, justification. Um, The timing is less important to me than the preparation. If it's just being sprung on us with no known preparation or justification, I think that is a problem.
6: Wyoming senior senator Mike Enzi says the best tool the GOP currently has to fight the White House is the Congressional Review Act, which gives Congress a say on new regulations. And it's the ability for Congress to
7: pass uh, a clawback on any regulation that's passed within 45 days after the time that it's published and provided there are enough signatures from the House and the Senate. And then there's guaranteed eight hours of debate, and it only takes a majority vote to pass in either House. And she says there's a catch, though. The president has to sign it. <laughs> If it's the president's regulation, the president's
6: not going to sign it. And he tried the rule in 2001 to stop a President Clinton regulation that would have allowed people who weren't injured at work to claim that they were injured at work. It was very
7: poorly written, so we went after it. I got to lead the charge on it, and it passed both houses. And then we changed president's. And the new president was more than willing to sign it, was willing to, was able to see how a regulation pushed through at the last minute often has a lot of flaws in it. And that one did.
6: Enzi is also sponsoring a bill that would allow both chambers of Congress to overturn a rule or regulation without needing a presidential signature, which he says would allow Congress to gain back some of its power. We're the ones that write these laws. Supposedly, they think that we ask them to do those regulations.
7: There's usually no indication that we intended that kind of a regulation,
6: and consequently, we ought to be able to say whether to do it or not. But for Congress to pass Enzi's proposal, it would take 60 votes in the Senate, and that could prove an uphill battle in a hyperpartisan Washington. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Matt Laszlo in Washington.
0: Wyoming voters will be asked to support a constitutional amendment this November that will change the way the state treasurer can manage Wyoming's rainy day accounts and endowments. Called Constitutional Amendment A, it will allow the state treasurer to invest that money in the equities market, and the expectation is that it will help grow those funds. Some are concerned, though, that this could put funds at risk. But state treasurer Mark Gordon says the amendment would allow the treasurer to manage these funds like the state currently manages the Permanent Mineral Trust Fund. He joins me to discuss this proposal.
3: Very simply, if the legislature says that certain of the funds that can't have anything but bonds right now, uh, if those funds can have some equity, it'll allow us to diversify the portfolio. So as you know, uh, you know we have about 19.5, a little better than that, billion dollars, and everybody thinks that's great. It gives off, you know, between 13 and 1700 dollars in taxes for every mortal soul in Wyoming that, that uh, is a citizen. People have to realize that the permanent funds take up a little bit more than half of that, uh, and um, those permanent funds have been able to invest in equities for uh, the last 20 years from the mid, from the mid, uh, 1990s. And they've outperformed the, um, what we call the state agency pool, which is really all the funds that run the rest of the state.
0: One of the things that, uh, people probably don't understand is that money, you know, where is that money? And then we also have some, uh, reserve accounts, the legislature sure. for instance, has that. So would this allow
3: all of those to be invested? Well, again, it depends on, uh, because what the provision allows is for the legislature to take a measured look at what funds can have this additional capacity, uh, and uh, they have to think it's a very good idea because they have to pass it by a two-thirds majority, both houses voting separately. So even if the amendment passes, it's still got to be really thought through. But in that, you're, you're absolutely right. In the state agency pool, there are the reserve funds. And I think a lot of people are particularly interested in the rainy day account. Sometimes people get confused between the Permanent Mineral Trust Fund, which is really for future generations, and the rainy day account, which is kind of our economic stabilization fund, if you will. And, and the rainy day account makes up about, uh, about a third of the, the bulk of the state agency pool. And uh, yes, if if the legislature said that reserve account uh, could have some equity, we would give it an asset allocation. The way we do that uh, is studied. Um, you know, it's not something that the treasurer just sort of willy-nilly goes out there and says, "I think we ought to buy this or that." Uh, the treasurer has to make a recommendation. It's that's, uh, that's informed by the um, the consultant that we have, and then it has to be passed by the State Loan and Investment Board in order to be adopted. So let's say that the uh, Rainy Day Fund had had the same asset allocation that the Permanent Minimal Trust Fund had. It would have been about $500 million better, uh, mm. just based on the fact that we have um, you know, basically three times better gain out of that
0: most year. Mark Gordon visiting with us, uh, talking about Constitutional Amendment A. And as I remember the debate, uh, and, and there was a lot of debate, especially in the Senate side, and, and maybe uh, even ran into a few conflicts on the House that you had to iron out, but, <laughs> uh, as I recall. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of concern about going in through the stock market and, and what kind of risks. I mean, what kind of risk do you think really think is out there?
3: Well, yeah. I mean, it's it's a good point. And I think anybody uh, who has ever looked at markets knows that the stock market's risky and bonds are supposed to be safe. Uh, You know, For the last uh, 30 years or so, from 1980s on, bond market has been very strong. Even in the beginning of uh, 2000, 2001, 2002, uh, bond markets, the most stable type of things, were earning 6%. They're now earning about 1% 1% or even less. And, and one of the biggest problems that we have there is um, the bond market can really go two ways. Uh, if it stays the same, we're earning less than inflation. If it goes up, what we hold by virtue of the fact that it has a lower interest rate than what's newly issued becomes less valuable. So we can take realized losses in our corpus. And if it goes down, negative even, which is what 40% of the developed market has done, uh, then, you, then you end up paying money to buy a bond. So, so um, it's just really no good place to be uh, right now when you see the bond market is going to change. And most people, um, it's, it's hard to imagine anybody that was doing bond trading back in the 1980s when that market was at its peak. Mm -hmm. If you use your permanent
0: mineral trust fund experience, uh, you know, there's going to be some loss. But for the most part,
3: it's always worked out, right? Well, and I think that's the other thing that's remarkable. I think a lot of people think about um, what the state does with its portfolio kind of like a, a retirement account or a 401K or something else. The state's a little different. The state's uh, – these are permanent funds, and the state is a permanent entity. And the, the state, therefore, has a very long-term horizon. There's there's a wonderful chart, and I think you can look online. J.P. Morgan has what they call their little book. And, and it goes quarter by quarter. But in that, there's a chart that demonstrates from 1950 uh, through till nine, uh, 2015 – It's really an interesting chart because it says if you trade in and out of the stock market on an annual basis, you can lose, worst case, 37% of what you own. That's a big, big, big number. But if you are patient and have time and can wait 10 or 20 years, if you wait 20 years, the worst you can do, pick your time going in, pick your time coming out, try to find the absolute worst, is to gain – a better than 4%. So if you can hold the stocks over the long haul, then you really have a fairly secure position. And, and one of the things that you can look to in Wyoming's experience with the PMTF, we went through the Great Recession, just like everybody else. We had a very conservative, prudent, which is the way we run our funds. It's by mandate and it's by statute. Um, very prudent uh, asset allocation. We did better than our peers And uh, within a year, we'd gain back everything that we had lost. So I think that's the other thing that's important to think about is that in the state agency pool, there is a variety of funds. We talked about the reserve fund, the rainy day account. Uh, There's also these trust funds, Wyoming Wildlife and Natural Resource Trust or the Cultural Resource Trust. There's a Children's Trust, which supports the Yes House and Gillette, among other things. and, and those we cannot run currently like an endowment because we can only invest in fixed income. Again, uh,
0: Mark Gordon is visiting with us. So you want to explain how this constitutional amendment vote works?
3: If you're strongly opposed to it, vote nay. But the most important vote for the state, for the security of the funds, and for the ability for us to do a better job with your money is to vote yay. If you don't vote, it's a no vote. Mark Gordon, always a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.
1: When we come back, we'll hear from Larry Strumpf, the Libertarian candidate for Wyoming's U.S. House seat. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Caroline Ballard.
0: And I'm Bob Beck. Larry Strump is hoping to shock the world. The Laramie Libertarian is trying to win the nod to become Wyoming's next congressman. Strump is a Wyoming native who has worked in the field of computer information systems for many years. He's running on a platform of less government and more civil liberties. He joins me to discuss some of those issues. Let me ask you about a couple of issues certainly facing the state right now and get your take on it. Obviously, there's a lot of conversation right now uh, about what's happening to the energy industry. Uh, On the Republican side, you see a lot of blame placed on the Obama administration, um, maybe EPA regulations and those kinds of things that have been causing problems. What's your read on that? Well, business... Businesses are going to do
8: what makes them the most money, no matter what. They're there to make profit. And the main thing that's hurting the coal industry right now is the affordability of natural gas and the, the oversupply. And so like our coal industries around the nation, it's stockpiled. When you get too much, you have uh, supply and demand. When the supply is greater than the demand, the price falls. I've been talking to various, you know, um, coal companies and representatives around Wyoming, and it really looks like 2017 should be a really good year for coal and energy. And so I think there's some miscommunication on how bad it is. I think that the projections for the future are inaccurate, Mm -hmm. that the energy sector is not as bad. Yes, a lot of people got laid off, but that was part of their restructuring. And after they go through their bankruptcies and get cleared up and You know they'll be hiring a lot of those back, and that the um, we need energy, we need more energy, and we need all energy. We need the coal, we need the oil, we need the natural gas, we need the wind turbines, we need every aspect of energy we can get to grow the future. And so,
0: it's only a temporary setback, I believe. Do you think there are regulations though that need to be gotten rid of? Uh, We've heard a lot about that in this campaign. Yeah, there, you see some of the government, and
8: this is where, you know, as a libertarian, you get the government overreach where you get organizations that are important and have, you know, a certain need. Like, you know, the EPA, I mean, we need clean water and clean air. We would die without them. But then they overreach and go beyond with some of the regulations. I mean, for example, the, you know, V, um, V, um, VW car that diesel that got shut down because of its regulations. It was still cleaner than pretty much any other car, and yet it gets shut down because of, you know, a little bit of emission problems. And some of the things don't make sense, you know, that they do. I, I grew up in a cattle ranch up in Riverton, and the EPA, you know, for some reason, you know, had jurisdiction to say all this land that the government bought from the reservation is still controlled for the air and water and stuff by the reservation. And it is allowing, um, you know, the reservations and the federal government more so to take control of the water and air in that
0: area.
5: Mm-hmm.
0: And so I, I believe that more of that control needs to be pushed to the state levels. How are you on one of the issues where we've been looking at here locally, um, in the state, and we're starting to prepare some stories on this, this whole land issue, uh, transferring land back to the states. Uh, the con side would be there potentially could be some loss of access uh, for hunters and, and recreationists. But the, but the pro side is you get the federal government out of the regulation making. So uh, what, what's your take on that whole thing?
8: Well, again, that this you know shows how it's important to vote on the issue and not the party line. So my party line would say, oh, you know, get the government, federal government out of there completely, you know, but in all reality, when the, the federal government controlled lands are very, very well protected and guaranteed um, public access to those lands, and they actually do manage and provide that freedom and access to the American citizens better than the states do. And it's just like I used to always love going up to Rogers Canyon Road. That that just got transferred to pub, private access just this summer. And so you can't count on the state, you know, allow you to have access to public lands or to even maintain the public lands. And so for
0: for the what's best for the American people would be to keep the public lands in the federal hands. All right, Trump visiting with us today. He, of course, is your libertarian candidate for Congress. Uh, you know, we're we're hearing a lot about uh, how we can propose a number of budget reforms. Senator Enzi, uh, for example, is looking at uh, turning things uh, more like we do in the Wyoming legislature. Uh, one issue uh, on on a piece of legislation, maybe turning something into a budget bill, a biennial budget. I'm curious. I mean, one of the things that's certainly been a libertarian cause for a number of years is balancing the budget. How do you get budget reform and what kinds of things are you looking for? Well, I, was it was like four weeks ago I
8: had lunch with uh, Mr. Enzi, and, and I agree with a great deal of what he you know, said that there's just so much waste in Washington. So, first of all, when you look at the national debt, I mean, it's just too big to even, you know, to, you know, visualize. We have to work on the annual budget. You have to get the annual budget under control. So we're not going further into debt. We're actually getting out of debt, you know, even if it's just a little at a time. But getting rid of the waste, you know, there's just so much money that the government is spending that is not needed. So it's important to work with the constituents on the right and the left to come together to Remove the waste, especially programs that are no longer needed, and just the overreach, the cost of you know wasteful programs.
0: Mm-hmm. Do you? I mean, do you see an opportunity to balance the budget sometime in <laughs> in our lifetime? Maybe I'm joking, but uh, you know, do you see an opportunity to do that? I believe it is very possible, and I, I believe it will. I I hope it will. I know that
8: if I get into Congress, I will work very hard to make that happen. Do you have areas you'd like to cut, or are there areas where you see wasteful spending? The EPA itself has many. The Homeland Security. I mean, there's just every area of government has waste. We need to go in and look at every, you know, just go through one area of government at a time and say, you know, this isn't needed. Okay, the state's are
0: already doing this. Why are we doing it again, dollars? I'm curious your thoughts on foreign policy. And as we move forward, obviously, there are some new threats that uh, in the last 10 years that we didn't see in previous generations. Uh, How should the United States approach things such as uh, what's going on in in other countries like ISIS and, and that sort of thing? Well, I think that
8: many Americans would agree if we hadn't gotten involved in Iraq and Afghanistan that we wouldn't be in the situation we are now. Countries were fairly stable, and the United States has a tendency to get involved where it shouldn't. The problem's gotten really bad now. Um, it's important to you know work with everyone to try to find the best solution for it, and I don't know what that solution is. I it would, I believe that it's not our job to be the policeman for the world. We need to back off you know, try to help out where we can. help our, you know, allies around the world. but it's not our job to police the world.
0: Larry Strump again. He is your libertarian candidate for Congress. Uh, nice chatting with you. Thank you for stopping in. You're welcome. You can learn more about Larry Strump on his website strumpforcongress.com.
1: When we return, we'll hear how high levels of ozone impact public health. And we'll have a conversation about the race for Wyoming's U.S. House seat after the race's only debate. This is Open Spaces.
0: This is Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Bob Beck.
1: And I'm Caroline Ballard. Coal has been a major theme this election season, with each side pointing fingers at the other.
0: Hillary Clinton wants to put all the miners out of business.
1: I'm the only candidate from the very beginning of this campaign who had a plan to help us revitalize coal country. From the presidential debate stage to local town halls, What to do about lost mining jobs keeps coming up. On Colorado's western slope, two candidates running for Congress are divided on the issue and are nearly matched in campaign contributions as Election Day approaches.
5: Inside Energy's Lee Patterson reports. In a hotel ballroom at the base of the Steamboat Ski Resort, candidates for the U.S. House and Senate and their surrogates tick through talking points. There are two issues I know of that Scott Tipton cares very, very deeply about. One of them is water and the other one is energy. Said Chuck uh, McConnell of the Route County Republicans Scott. speaking on behalf of Congressman Scott Tipton, the third-term Republican incumbent. He's running for re-election in Colorado's 3rd Congressional District. At the candidate forum were bankers, property managers, and lots of local business owners. Not an obvious crowd for talking about coal. Still, the coal industry is under incredible pressure here. This rural congressional district spans almost half of the state, but is home to only 14 percent of Colorado's total population. It includes resort communities like Aspen and Steamboat and all of Colorado's active coal mines. Production is way down, and at least 700 coal miners have lost their jobs over the past few years. The district's economic shift away from coal has been a major campaign theme. The coal miners are our community. That's from a Tipton campaign video. Scott Tipton himself didn't agree to be interviewed for this story, but we do know that he blames his challenger for waging a war on coal. Gail Swartz is not the answer for this valley or the state of Colorado.
6: I'm Scott Tipton, and I approve this message. Your next U.S. Congresswoman, Gail Swartz! I
5: catch up with the Democratic challenger at a campaign event in Steamboat.
2: I'm not anti-coal.
5: The real victims
2: in this point, finger, pointing and blaming are those communities. They're the true victims.
5: Schwartz says Tipton has done little to prepare these communities for a post-coal economy. Let's invest in those new jobs that are coming up. In outdoor recreation, she says, and in renewables like biomass and wind. Schwartz names the Vestis Wind Tower Manufacturing Facility in Pueblo and employs hundreds as an example of what works. But she admits it won't be easy. This is tough, and this is a tradition, and this is a culture.
8: I mean, this is a mining state. That's why people came here to, to begin with.
5: Dustin Olson is a conservative political consultant based in Denver.
8: So, the economic opportunity that that provided, that's, that's why we exist as a state.
5: He says the 3rd District is marginal, meaning it doesn't lean strongly left or right. And according to the Cook Political Report, this is one of just two House races in the state that's competitive or that could become competitive. And with just weeks to go before Election Day, the candidates are practically neck and neck in campaign contributions. Schwartz has collected $1.3 million to Tipton's $1.5 million.
8: So in a volatile election, districts like that are the ones that are more likely to do something different. Those districts can swing wildly.
5: And sometimes that tradition that Gail Schwartz talked about has a strong pull. Take the tiny town of Oak Creek, just 20 miles south of Steamboat. Today, the town is home to a gastropub and a marijuana shop. But a gigantic coal shovel sits on the main drag as a monument to Oak Creek's coal mining history. I meet Bill Babcock at the post office. He's a mailman.
7: Yeah, I like Scott Tipton
5: and he wants a Republican to represent him. Babcock thinks President Obama is killing the coal industry.
9: The mining industry has been one of the lifelines of this community as far as coal. Without it, I, I think it would be devastating.
5: A conservative group called the Congressional Leadership Fund is hoping to reach more voters like Bill Babcock. The super PAC is spending $1.3 million on pro in TV ads starting this week. For Inside Energy... I'm Lee Patterson.
0: High levels of ozone in western Wyoming have long been linked to oil and gas development. Now researchers nationwide are starting to look closer at the magnitude of those emissions and how they impact public health. Children with asthma are especially vulnerable. For Inside Energy, Anna Boyko-Wyrock reports on what is known and what isn't about the link between ozone, energy production, and asthma.
10: Here's a simple recipe for ozone. Mix hydrocarbon and nitrogen oxide chemical compounds in the air and add sunlight.
9: The sun comes out and cooks this mixture and the outcome of that is ozone.
10: Steve Brown is a scientist at NOAA, the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration in Boulder. Ozone is a problem Colorado has had for a long time. The state has been out of compliance with federal ozone limits for nearly a decade. In high enough levels, that ozone has serious health implications. On a recent fall evening, 8-year-old Ariana Sanchez waited for her brother to finish football practice. She attempts the monkey bars. Okay. Trying my best. Ariana has asthma, but hasn't had a serious attack for two years. Her mom, Darlene Sanchez. She knows how to control her breathing. She At least she makes me believe that she's controlling it. She's learning when what her limits are. To me, when I'm at recess, I get kind of wheezy. And sometimes I just like take a breath, then I like feel better. Active outdoor kids are most at risk for ozone exposure. Dr. Nathan Rabinovich is a pediatric asthma specialist at National Jewish Health. He says it's well understood that ozone has a toxic effect on the body.
3: There are some cells in the lungs that may die because of the toxicity of ozone.
10: But finding the causes of that ozone is tricky, Dr. Rabinovich says, because so many different factors go into creating it.
3: It's not a straight line, but I think that you know we have to be cognizant about all sources of air pollution.
10: Some researchers are starting to draw a straight line between ozone and oil and gas development. In a study published in September in the Journal of the American Medical Association, researchers in Pennsylvania found that exposure to oil and gas air pollution was associated with exacerbated asthma attacks. It was the first scientific study of its kind. Another recent study was the first to quantify the contribution of the oil and gas industry on the amount of ozone on Colorado's front range. Oil and gas contributed... 17 percent, which is what we found. University of Colorado scientist Erin McDuffie talked to me over Skype. 17 percent to ozone production locally. She worked with NOAA and published her results this August in the Journal of Geophysical Research. That 17 percent was new ozone from oil and gas production on your average summer day in Colorado. NOAA researcher Steve Brown was McDuffie's advisor on the research. He explains that ozone on the Front Range comes from two main sources. Cars, trucks, industry, for example, create nitrogen oxides. The other key ingredient, called volatile organic compounds or hydrocarbons, leaks from oil and gas extraction.
9: What the oil and gas industry is doing is extracting those compounds from underground. And some of those hydrocarbons get out in that process and they get into ambient air.
10: There's another big contributor to ozone levels on the Front Range, something known as background ozone. It hangs around at the end of the day or is carried in from other places. Here's Matthew Dempsey of the Center for Regulatory Solutions speaking on behalf of the Colorado Oil and Gas Association.
8: Because we have such a high level of background ozone, any other kind of ozone concern is going to be significant. But overall, the oil and gas sector is a very small piece of the puzzle.
5: Darlene
10: Sanchez watches her daughter on the playground. She always keeps an asthma inhaler close by. Sanchez says more information is always helpful. It's good to know as a parent anything that could possibly trigger her. She may have more answers soon. Scientists from NASA, NOAA, Colorado State University, and state health officials are also doing research to try and draw more conclusions about how energy production in Colorado affects the air we breathe. For Inside Energy, I'm Anna Boyko-Wyrock.
0: Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues.
1: Campaign season is heading into its last few weeks, and one of the bigger races in this state is the battle for Wyoming's lone U.S. House seat. Bob Beck has been keeping tabs on that race and was a panelist for Thursday night's debate. I thought we'd ask him five questions about that race. So let's start with the debate last night. Did Democrat Ryan Green show that he's a qualified candidate?
0: Well, he certainly did, and I think he's done that up until now. But last night he was on stage with Liz Cheney. He got feisty with her on several occasions and and certainly bounced back uh, on a couple of attacks that she did very well and certainly got an opportunity to express his point of view. Uh, Green is trying to make sure that people see him is not a liberal democrat and he frequently refers to him as himself as a Friedenthal democrat which is someone who has some republican values mixed in with democratic values and this is especially true when it comes to the energy industry and he does work in the energy industry and so i know there were many times that liz cheney in the debate tried to tie him with hillary clinton Uh, that's a little bit of a stretch. And so he would frequently point out that he's not against coal, he's for coal. And he probably said a couple of things that would infuriate probably some very hardcore Democrats, but they're still going to be pleased, I would think, with his performance and vote for him.
1: Liz Cheney had mostly appeared in forums against like-minded candidates. How did she fare in a slightly more combative environment? Well,
0: I think at times she showed some inexperience. She opened the door for a big attack when she uh, basically said to Ryan Green that, well, Uh, you're lucky you got your job because of her, your father. Uh, He quickly said, I think your father got you a job in the State Department. And that actually got quite a few laughs. He got a lot of laughs actually throughout most of the night. And so I think what you've seen before with Liz Cheney is she basically was in, as you said, debates with like-minded people. Here was somebody that maybe saw the world a little bit differently. However, reading some of the social media reaction to her performance last night, she probably did very well within the Republican base. She's been very consistent, she's uh, had strong conservative. stances. She's very anti-President Obama, anti-Hillary Clinton. And that's a good thing to probably continue to say in our state, especially with some of the hardline Republicans. So she did very well. Uh, She got her points across. But as I said, uh, this was the first time maybe she had some adversity and, and we'll probably learn from that.
1: This was the only debate for this seat, was it a good idea for Liz Cheney to only agree to one debate?
0: Yeah, it is. Uh, and and I know that will infuriate a lot of people. But if you're somebody who is perceived as the front runner, and that's usually an incumbent, you know, I don't think Representative Lummis has ever done more than one debate. Uh, Representative Cuban always does one debate. I think uh, Mike Enzi does one debate. John Barrasso might do a couple. But uh, generally, that's the way it is. And, you know, if she looks at the numbers of all the Republicans out there, uh, you know, you're just opening yourself up to some serious damage. Now, had it not gone all that well last night, if it had gone very badly and, and he really uh, did a great job and, and well, then that would be a different story. But I think her camp felt like she would hold her own, uh, get her message out there. And, and I think she certainly did.
1: With Ryan Green positing himself as a Friedenthal Democrat, as you said, what is the difference between these two candidates? Well,
0: he does have a lot of Democratic values. Uh, he's got uh, lots of concern about poverty. He's got lots of concern about equal pay for equal work. He, you know, he's got, uh, he handled, I think, a question about gun violence uh, very well. He's somebody, as I've talked to him, and he's been in our studio two or three times, you know, it's it's been interesting to see that, you know, he has um, a lot of the principles that many of our Democrats in our state have, which are certainly different than New York City type of Democrats. And so he's going to be very interested in, you know, hunting rights and, and uh, gun rights and things like uh, the energy industry, where they're going to be very different probably is how you approach some social issues. He's a big fan of Medicaid expansion, as an example, thinks you can simply tweak the Affordable Care Act and it'd be just fine. Uh, Liz Cheney would like to totally get rid of that. So that's the big difference. She is going to be a very hardcore Republican if she wins the race. He is somebody that's probably going to be much more middle of the road if he wins the race.
1: Do you think Republicans then may cross over and and vote for Green?
0: I think there's no question some will. Uh, There are still some people that are concerned that, uh, to use a term I hear a lot, uh, a carpetbagger, that she's somebody who's maybe come into the state riding the coattails of her father, fair or unfair. Uh, I do think that there may be some people that will go his way. and And I think his performance last night convinced some people that yeah, I'm not voting for some crazy person or something like that. But at the end of the day, they both campaigned very well. I think for Ryan Green, the big problem is still very few people know who he is. And uh, the name recognition with her is just out of sight. Of course, everybody seems to know who she is. People who don't know anything about politics and don't follow it know that she's running in this race. And for him, uh, that's been a big problem.
1: Well, Bob, it's always wonderful to have your insight on uh, Wyoming politics. Thanks so much. Thank you. Ahead, we'll wrap up the show with a conversation about the future of small-town America. This is Open Spaces.
0: Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio. I'm Bob Beck.
1: And I'm Caroline Ballard. According to demographers, small-town America is in trouble. Populations are aging and shrinking as young people leave for the big city. But that's not the whole picture. In her new book, Julianne Couch draws on her own experience to paint a portrait of nine small towns in Nebraska, Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, and Wyoming, specifically Centennial. The book is called The Small Town Midwest, Resilience and Hope in the 21st Century. Julianne Couch spoke with Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer. For the purposes
4: of the book, the Midwest spans the area from the Rocky Mountains, this eastern edge of the Rocky Mountains, all the way across to the Mississippi River. Those are places that I have lived or spent a lot of time growing up in Kansas City, living here in Wyoming for 20 years, and then moving to Iowa it is an area that I care about personally and wondered why I'm here.
9: We hear so much about the increasing urbanization of America, especially during election year. We hear so much about how much power urban voters have mm-hmm. versus how much power rural voters have. Mm-hmm. And yet when, when I read a book like yours, one's reminded that, you know, as you point out, 50 million people Live in small towns mm-hmm. in America.
4: And what happens is when you're far from things, by that technical government definition, you get less stuff from the government. And so consequently, your issues are not heard. Rural broadband, gee, that would be nice if everybody in rural America had re- access to super fast internet. But you know what? It's more important to make sure that everybody in urban areas has access for you know school choice. Rural people don't talk about school choice because there's only one dang school, and that's if you're lucky. So our issues aren't on that national discussion table as much as they should be considering our numbers, but we're kind of a diaspora.
9: In Centennial, one of the things that you observe is the mix of people who live there. And this is to some degree emblematic of, of many of the small towns mm-hmm. you look at. You've got your long timers and you've got your newcomers. Mm-hmm. And it seems that that is maybe in some ways what is keeping small towns going is that mix of people.
4: That's Right. Um, as you said, you know there'll, there'll be the kind of the downtown crew in Centennial that sort of keep the music and the arts and the sort of you know be willing to live on on kind of a margin on on a minimal amount just to be able to do what it is that they really want to do, creatively, to make them happy. Um, there's ranch folks who have places in town that you know who are old time Wyoming families, go back generations, and then people who think I'm coming to Laramie or wherever, but I want to live kind of further out. It's close enough. It's on the map.
2: On, the on map, paper, yeah. it's closing. enough. In up. the summer.
4: <laughs> uh, so it seems like a really good choice. But all, whatever reason people have for being there, the thing that ties them all together is their attitude toward mobility, personal mobility. And that's what I find fascinating.
9: If you look at the census, the line is trending downward in terms of population and economic vitality for mm-hmm. a lot of uh, rural communities around yes. the country. So if you could look into your crystal ball, where do you see... The American small town headed. What's the future?
4: Small towns that are near big cities probably pretty well. If you're not more than, you know, thirty miles from a, a town of twenty-five thousand, even or a, a town the size of Laramie, it's not super easy constantly to run to town for things. But it's okay. You're doing okay, and you're bound to maybe get some drift of people wanting maybe building up some of the bedroom communities or you know building out a little bit. You're going to be okay. If you've got to drive a hundred miles to a car dealership, a shopping center, your town is going to be in trouble. And you can count the you can count the generations, but that doesn't mean you have to give up. You can still have a city government that functions. You can still have trash pickup. You can still have a, a library. You can still have a, a coffee shop. You can still have a quality of life. I'm thinking about my own small town right now, Bellevue, Iowa, and I think it's pretty common. Sedan, Kansas, was a similar. Uh, case in point, of what we're trying to figure out how to do about stabilizing population versus growing population. So that's one thing. Do we really try to grow by 5%? Or do we just say, how do we keep the people that we have? And the other piece of that is, do we focus our energies on tourism? Because we know we're not going to get any industry. So let's just focus on getting people to come here, spend their money, stay at a kind of a decent hotel or B&B for the weekend, and then go back to their big cities. Or do we really focus on what do the one younger people here in high school right now, what would it take for them? What are they looking for? It doesn't do any good to make all the retirees happy. I mean, I, mean, I don't mean that kind of flippantly, but the people you should be focusing on are your 15-year-olds.
9: And that's, of course, the demographic that leaves. You get right. out of high school, the small town generally doesn't have the college, mm-hmm. so you go right. off to college. Right. And from there, you probably don't go back to the small town.
4: You don't right away. But then you're 28 or 30 years old, and you're married, and you have a couple of kids, maybe, and you say- Boy, wouldn't it be nice to have a grandmother around here someplace mm-hmm. who can take care of these kids? But, and also just, just that family generational connection. I met lots of people, and I was sort of surprised. I thought that was sort of a myth that, you know, oh, they want to come home to their grandparents. But I met a lot of people who really did move back to their small town to make it because they really wanted that family connection. Again, it was just an essence of life kind of need that, that trumped the other concerns that they had. And they decided you can figure out that other stuff. But you can't figure out a substitute for family if that's something that really means something to you.
9: When you look at, at the census, resilience and hope maybe aren't the words that come to mind immediately. <laughs> Where do you see that? How did you, how did you come on that as the takeaway?
4: Well, I read a quote from Elizabeth Edwards. So she was talking about her breast cancer and how she came through that. And she said, it's, resilience is that you're not getting back to normal, but you're accepting whatever the new normal might be. And I thought that's a really good metaphor for what small towns might be needing to do. You're not going to be your town of 5,000 anymore when the town 20 miles away puts in a Walmart and opens up a small industry that hires 100 people. You're just not because that's where people are going to go. But not everybody wants to live in a place like that. So people want to live in your town of 2,000 where there's no stoplights. So capitalize on the positives that you have.
9: Julianne Couch is the author of The Small Town Midwest Resilience and Hope in the 21st Century. Thanks so much for stopping by to talk about the book.
4: You're welcome. It was worth a, the 1,100 mile drive. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Thank you for listening to this edition of Open Spaces. If you'd like to hear the entire program or individual segments, go to our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org.
0: You can also sign up for our podcast on that website or get it from iTunes. And if you get the podcast, we'd appreciate it if you'd rate it and write a comment. Anna Rader is our web editor.
1: All of our reporters are on Twitter, and we'd love it if you liked our Wyoming Public Radio News Facebook page.
0: As a reminder, we always like to hear about good story ideas. You can also submit those through our website or our Facebook page. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.